This is the St. Long Chinus' Baptism Channel, Episode 9, The Heirs and Heresies of the Vatican II Council. I want to do a couple of prayers. This is the Amina Christi. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. Soul of Christ, be my sanctification. Body of Christ, be my salvation. Blood of Christ, fill, fill my all my veins. Water from Christ's side, wash out my stain. Passion of Christ, my comfort be. O oh, good Jesus, listen to me. In thy woods I, I fain would hide, never to be parted from thy side. Guard me, should the foe assail me, call me when my life shall fail me. Bid me come to thee above, with all thy saints to sing thy love, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen. The second prayer is the... I can't, I can't say this word. I'm going to spell it. It's the... S-U-S-C-I-P-E. S-U-S-C-I-P-E. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Receive, O Lord, all my liberty. Take my memory, my understanding, my entire will. Whatever I have or hold, thou hast given it. I give it back I give it all back to thee and committed wholly to be governed by thy will. Thy love, thy grace give unto me, and I am rich enough to ask for nothing more. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. All right, so this episode is about the heresies, the error in the heresies of the Vatican II Council. It is not a complete list, but it's going to cover, I, I hope, I, I hope that it covers enough that um, you will you will at least start to question the Catholic Church that you are in. Um, those of you who believe that the Second Vatic Vatican II Council is, is legitimate. I want to start off by saying a couple things. The first thing is, this is for those of you who consider yourself Catholic, as Jesus said in one of his Gospels, he said, Those with you with ears, let them hear. Now I'm hoping that that is plain enough to understand. Now, the second thing I want to say is, and 
back when I was in the Vatican II church, people always used to say or quote the famous quote from anti-Pope Paul VI. He said that the smoke of Satan has entered the church. Now, this is not a, a episode on Sedevacantism. This is just pointing out the errors of Vatican II. Should you feel compelled to research the Vatican II Council, I would suggest that if you do have eyes and ears, that you'll, you'll understand that when Pope, uh, I'm sorry, anti-Pope Paul VI said what he said, um, that I think he was trying to mislead the faithful into thinking that he was an unwitting pawn to the, to the vile bishops and cardinals that were manipulating him from behind the scenes. But if you do the research, you'll find that he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was going on. And, you know, he, he, he was not an unwitting pawn. He was actually a puppeteer himself. Now, I know for a lot of you, that's going to say, oh, my God, he's, he's heretical. He's questioning the Pope. How dare he? Um, first of all, Pope, as far as I'm concerned, Pope Paul VI, or what you consider Pope Paul VI, I consider him an anti-pope. So I have, no, I have no issues talking smack about him, uh, anti-pope John XXIII, um, John Paul XXIII, Benedict, or Francis. I have no, the, all these guys, as far as I'm concerned, are anti-popes. So I have no problem talking smack about them. Now, because I'm trying to be charitable, you know, I'm not going to be nasty about it, but I'm not going to give them a name, or I'm sorry, I'm not going to refer to them by a title, which they neither deserve nor um, are entitled to, you know. I'm an honest guy, you know. I'm not going to call somebody by a title that they, they have neither earned nor deserve, so... Anywho, a little bit of my background. I'm not going to assume that those of you who come across this episode have listened to my other podcasts. Hopefully, though, if you do find what I say here of some value to you, you will listen to some of my other episodes. But once again, this is... Up to you. Now, because I'm assuming that you're just stumbling upon this episode for the first time, I'm going to give you a little of my backstory, and it's very brief. I joined Protestantism from basically, 
I was not religious at all. And when I say not religious at all, I mean, I absolutely despised God. I despised religion. Now, I did not, you know, I wasn't an atheist. I didn't think that, you know, um, God didn't exist. I just thought I took the deist position, which if you're from America, you're going to take the deist position where God is this big watchmaker in the sky. He winds everything up and then just lets everyone do what they want to do. So I joined Protestantism in 2000 and, uh, 2001, or, yeah, 2001, and um, I did a lot of research, and while I was a Protestant, and I realized that there were too many inherent contradictions to the Protestant theology, so I joined what uh, some of you consider to be the Catholic Church. Um, the church that anti-Pope Francis is currently in charge of. And at the time, I honestly believe that this was the true Catholic church. Now, a little aside, something that I have not mentioned in my previous episodes, the reason I joined the Catholic church was I knew that God existed. I knew that God was in my life, that he he had helped me through some serious troubles in my life. But I knew that Protestant theology and of the particular branch of Protestantism I was in, Pentecostalism, that I could not maintain their 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 uh, tenets, for lack of a better term. For those of you, and by the way, this episode is aimed at Vatican II or semi-traditional Catholics or, you know, people that consider themselves Catholics. So you may not have know what the tenets of um, Pentecostalism is. Basically, Pentecostalism is a very strict form of Protestantism. You're not allowed to listen to uh, anything but religious music. You're not allowed to have a TV. Um, You're not allowed anything but uh, to read like secular books. Um, You can't drink. You can't smoke. And God help you if they find out that you've done any illegal drugs. Um, Not that you should be. I'm just saying... um, you know, I, I realized that, I, you know, and don't get me wrong, I was praying to God and stuff, but I seemed to be stuck in a very bad rut at that time. But anyway, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to uh, still, I, I still wanted to be with God as I understood him. And so... I said, okay, I, I, I can't match up to the um, I can't match up to the uh, Pentecostal version of uh, a Protestantism. I just I, I, there's something wrong with me. I can't do it. So basically, 
I got to thinking and I'm like, okay, I still, I know that Protestantism has its issues and I don't really think it's the true way to God. But Pentecostalism, there's something there that I just can't meet. So I need something that isn't Protestantism and that will be, you know, lower the bar. Now, those of you who are semi-trads are going to laugh at that. You know, once I understood what true Catholicism was, I had to laugh at myself when I realized it because <laughs> basically um, it's it's a lot tougher than Pentecostalism. But at the same time, because you are dealing with the true religion, you know, you you have more resources where God is can help you get through, you know, your trials and your tribulations. Anyway, so I, um, oh, and by the way, because I, uh, let me go back, let me back up. So I chose Catholicism. Now, the reason I chose Catholicism was very simple. Two reasons. One, it wasn't Protestantism. Two, now for you, for you uh, Catholics out there who, you know, for you Catholics who aren't semi-trads, you're just, you know, you go to church on Sunday and that's it. Don't take this the wrong way. This is not aimed at all Catholics, okay? This is a, gen a generality. It's not a broad brush condemnation of Catholics in general. But the second reason I joined the Catholic Church was most of the Catholics that I had met, well, actually, I'm going to take that back, all the Catholics that I'd met while I was a Protestant were, were I, I considered them lax, I considered them lazy. Um, I, I just figured, well, you know, this isn't Protestantism. You know, most of the uh, all the Catholics I've met, you know, this this seems to be an easy route. I'll take that. Not realizing, of course, what I'd gotten myself into, but that's another story. So I joined. I did RCIA in two thousand and four. Now, any of you old enough to remember are going to remember that in 2004, Pope John Paul got very sick. And that right before Easter of 2005, he died. And um, Benedict, uh, anti-Pope Benedict XVI got, quote unquote, elected to the papacy. Now, that's my background. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll go a little further, but that's that's the gist of what I'm, my bona fides, as it were. So, now I, as I told you, this was in 2004. I had only converted to Christianity in 2001. And like I said, completely ignorant, completely, utterly ignorant of Christianity in general. I'd done some research and stuff, but 
anybody who's been a Christian for a long time will tell you you're you're learning as you go. You know, you don't you don't uh become suddenly knowledgeable in a short time. So when I joined this church, I thought it was the true Catholic Church. And um once once I, 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 like I said, I went through RCA in 2004 and I'm going through these classes and I realized that there was a lot of misinformation, not just from Protestants, because I kind of expected that given the fact that, you know, Protestants, you know, Protestants, uh, had a totally different theology from traditional Catholicism, but also from society in general. And I started doing, you know, because you, you, if you're, if you're serious about your religion, you read, I started reading and I started realizing that this was going to make, you know, if I, if I took it seriously, which I intended on doing, this was going to be a heck of a lot more tougher than, than being a Pentecostal. You know, just in a different way, though. Just in a different way. And then the more I'm reading, because basically, to make a long story short, I quit the Vatican II church in 2016, basically because of contradictions, which we're going to get to in this podcast that came after Vatican II was enacted is the long and the short of it. Now, um, I do realize, um, Oh, let me take that back. So between 2004 and 2016, I'm I'm reading. Now I'm going to be upfront because I try to be honest at all costs. I was not nearly as diligent as I should have been in my in, in my spiritual life or my my reading. You know, I was not disciplined. I was lazy, and I was not diligent. But I was still doing reading. And as I'm doing the reading, I'm, like I said, I'm starting to notice that, you know, pre-Vatican II, church teaching did not contradict itself. It absolutely did not contradict itself. And then after the Vatican II Council, you know, um, the teachings were different. They did contradict previous teachings. So I got out in 2016. Um, the whole set of a contest thing, I do plan on doing a episode on set of a contism, but for right now, this is neither the time nor place to get into that particular issue. This is just to give you my background. Okay. Um, 
So, I'm going to give a brief statement and then I'm going to list the heirs. I'm going to list the heirs of the Vatican II Council. But um, before I give the brief statement, there's a further quote I want to give. And this is from St. Paul in one of his epistles. We are in the world, but we are not of it. The semi-trads will probably have a uh, better understanding of what I'm talking about than the average Vatican II person. But I want to start off with that. So, um, All right, so this is my statement. This is aimed at the people who consider Vatican II to be a legitimate church council and who consider the Vatican II church the true Catholic church, either as pew-sitters or as neo-traditionalists. Now, what I mean is neo-traditionalists for the pew sitters, they would what you would be what you would call conservative Catholics. Um, however, I'm sure that the neo traditionalists, if they had any understanding of theology, would bristle at that description. They there's a reason they call themselves traditionalists. Now, the reason I I say neo traditionalists is because the traditionalists who recognize the Vatican II Council as legitimate, I consider them neo-traditionalists. Because from my theological position, in case I haven't made this clear already, is said of a contest. I do not recognize Vatican, uh, Vatican II as a legitimate council. I do not recognize any pope after Pope uh, Pius Twelfth as a legitimate Pope. And hopefully, I'm praying that the Lord will lead you to come to this conclusion after I list the heirs and heresies of the Vatican II Council. And by the way, in my show notes, in the previous episode, I... um. I listed some set of a contest podcasters for, for you younger types that don't like reading. Um, however, in, in, in the show notes for this episode, I'm going to list books that show the errors and the heresies of Vatican II. Anyway, to get back to what I'm saying, there seems to be three types of attitudes that most of, I'm not saying all, you know, we're all individuals. I'm saying that most, they seem to fall into three types of attitudes. Um, 
the people that recognize Vatican II as a legitimate council. The first type seems uh, are ig- uh, have ignorance of the Catholic faith and a blind and passive and lazy acceptance to what they think of of the what they think of of the Catholic Church. I'm going to repeat this. The first type are ignorant of the Catholic faith, are blind, passive, and lazy. They have a blind, passive, and lazy acceptance of basically what I call the Vatican II sect church. The second type are arrogant, narcissistic, close my. I'm sorry, have a arrogant, narcissistic, and closed-minded view that Vatican II is a legitimate council and have a prideful refusal to even question their own worldview while at the same time being pharisaically judgmental, arrogant, and vindictive toward those who disagree with them. They may also be noted for their stunning ignorance, very shallow understanding of um, theology, Catholic theology in particular, and a undeserved sense of their own competency when it comes to matters of the faith and doctrine. These people I consider to be spiritually and mentally immature. And just as a further note, if you find that last description very offensive, my advice to you would be, if the shoe fits, wear it. Like I said in in the beginning of this episode, let him with ears hear. The third type that I've run into is those who know there's something wrong with the Vatican II sect, but think, but because they're young and immature and ignorant, think that there's nothing that they can do about it. Um, there is a particularly pernicious, pernicious propaganda point that the apologists for the Vatican II Council and members of the clergy and the hierarchy put out that, you know, well, if if you question Pope Francis, you're not a saint. You can't do that. And furthermore, he's the Pope. You can't question him. Well, first of all, if you have an understanding that a pope is not legitimate, then you are not bound to that pope. If, if, if you know, if you see a pope blatantly being a heretic, i.e., that abortion that happened with the the Pacama idol, 
in the Vatican? That's an out-and-out blatant heresy. Okay? A a well-versed middle schooler with a traditional Catholic teaching could tell you that that's a blatant heresy. Once that happens, you are no longer bound to the strictures of that Pope. Now, if you honestly believe that that man is a Pope, in other words, if you, through ignorance, if if you don't see anything wrong with the Pacama incident at at, uh, St. Peter's Basilica, if you, if you, through ignorance, do not see anything wrong with that, then yes, you are honestly bound to Pope Francis. You are bound to him. But once you understand that, what he, you know, and by the way, that's not the only heresy that's been committed. I'm using that as a blatant example. But once you understand that, that a, a pope or a bishop has blatantly become or, or, or publicly did a heretical act, you are no longer bound to them. Okay? You're no, if, if you want to f- drink the Kool-Aid that the Vatican II apologists give you saying that you're no theologian, you're not... You know, you're not a canon lawyer. You you have no right to question the hierarchy. Well, I would suggest researching the set of Acontis position because the set of Acontis position is and the no the most notable doctor of the church, Saint Robert Bellarmine, has stated that a public heretic a public heretic and you know that that just doesn't apply to the hierarchy or the clergy it also applies to your your neighbors if a person is publicly heretical you're not you're not bound to them in other words if your neighbor jim bob is is a public heretic you're you're under you're under a uh, you're under church law not to have anything to do with him. And as far as the clergy and the hierarchy goes, if a bishop or a pope or a cardinal is a public heretic, you're not bound to that pope. Robert Bellarmine taught this back back in like the 16th century. Okay, but. Um, the, I, I, like I said, I want to get into the set of a contest position in a future episode, but, um, I just, I just wanted to raise that issue because I have heard Vatican II uh, Catholics say well, I can't question the Pope. It's not a matter of questioning him. It's not a matter of questioning him. If he's a public heretic, he automatically disqualifies himself from being Pope. Or for that matter, being inside the Catholic Church, period. And, you know, if you're even remotely familiar with with church doctrine, 
A heretic cannot be a Catholic. I repeat, a heretic and, a, and, and one of the qualifications for being part of the hierarchy or being clergy is you have to be Catholic, okay? Once Martin Luther broke from the Catholic Church, he was no longer a Catholic, just to make that clear. Now, the semi-traditionalists who, they're, they're known... They're known in uh, Catholic or theological cir circles as the resist, recognize and resist movement. Now, when it comes to the semi-traditionalists at least the public ones, not the guys going to their local SSPX chapels. They'll sit and call people who are part of the set of a contest position, and they'll they'll call them everything but a child of God. You know, heretics, schismatics, whatever, because they don't recognize any pope after Pius the Twelfth. While at the same time, they will argue, well, um, we recognize Vatican II is legitimate and we recognize all the popes, but we're going, you know, if, 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 a, if a pope or a bishop does something that we find problematic, we'll recognize them, but we're not going to follow them. Now, I have never heard a more cognitive dissidence position in all my years because church law is very clear on this point. If you recognize a pope as the legitimate pope, and by the way, there are papal, papal, ah, papal encyclicals written by popes prior to Vatican II who have Im implicitly stated that it's all it's an all or nothing proposition either you recognize if you recognize the pope either you follow him or you're a heretic it's that simple but once again we're getting into you know uh, the set of a contest position. Um, but I just, you know, the reason I say that the uh, uh, the neo-traditionalist position is cognitive dissidence is they're calling people who take the set of a contest position who don't recognize any pope after... Uh, Pope or clergy after 1958 is legitimate as heretics and schismatics and some other nasty things that I'm not going to get into, but at the same time say, well, we recognize these bishops and popes, but if they do something we don't like, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to follow that. Despite the fact that there are papal 
papal encyclicals that say the exact opposite. And furthermore, I want to point out to my quote-unquote semi-traditional um, or what I call neo-traditionalist buddies out there is, you know who also takes that position? Protestants. As I stated in the introduction to this episode, I was a Protestant. And it, there are certain segments of Protestantism that complain about what they call church hopping. Basically, church hopping is you're going to Brother Cletus's church that teaches why. And you go to that church until Brother Cletus says something that you, you know, you disagree with, you think is rotten. So you go to Brother Jim Bob's church across town. Till he says something that, you know, you don't like. And then you go to uh, Sister Christine's church, you know, and so on and so forth. It's called church hopping. So you semi, or I'm sorry, you neo-trads out there who think that, you know, you're not Protestant. <laughs> That's a very Protestant thing, what you're doing, saying, well, I'll recognize Pope Francis as a legitimate pope. But I'm, if he if he if he says something that I don't like, I'm not doing it. That's a very Protestant position to take, you know. But you call us the schismatics and heretics. Anyway, um. Now to the third to the third type of individual I would ask them this question If you believe that the Catholic religion is the one true faith do you think that Jesus Christ our redeemer our god our savior would put you in a situation that you can't that you that you can't get out of. And furthermore. Is that this begs the question. If. You know. And I'm, I'm using. I'm using the example of Francis. Because he's the most blatant example. Although. Every Pope. From John the 23rd on. Has done heresy. It just wasn't as, as verifiable. At that time. Because there was no internet. But do you think that Jesus Christ would allow a blatant heretic like Francis to run his church if, if our church is the one true church? Because I don't know about you guys, I consider the Catholic Church to be Jesus Christ's one true church. There are no other ways to salvation, despite what Vatican II much, might teach. So, my answer is no. So, if I have the understanding that there's a heretic masquerading as a pope, I have two conclusions. One is, well... Jesus lied to us when he said that the gates of hell shall not prevail. Or two, 
something happened to bring this about and that the Catholic Church as as it was started was the one true church but somewhere in the past 50 years something happened where heretics have taken over and are now running the church but you know and, and you got to you got to use a little a little logic when you're thinking about this If you believe that Jesus is God, you know, God knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many heartbeats a moment you have. He knows how many cells are in your body. Everything you did in secret, he knows. Everything that's going to happen in the future, he knows. There are things that have happened that he knows about that you don't. He is the author of creation. So he knew that this was going to happen. He knew that this was going to happen, that this situation was going to come about. And he made, he made preparation. When this time came about, there was going to be a means to fix it. But in order to utilize those means, you're going to have to kill some sacred cows to get to that point. Now, as I have said in previous broadcasts, if Jesus Christ is your number one priority, then you're going to have to make sacrifices, work harder than you've ever worked, and put be put in many uncomfortable situations. And when I say uncomfortable, I, I mean being put in the situations that really test the limits of your human endurance to defend your faith. This broadcast, I'm going to ask you to challenge your worldview, your attitude, and change your way of thinking. And once again, I'm going to repeat, let them with ears hear what I'm saying. Like I said, in my show notes, I'm going to list books that document the errors and the heresies of the Vatican II Council. And by the way, in case I didn't mention this earlier, for those of you who don't like to read, I'm going to strongly suggest, unless you have a mental, a mental or physical disability that keeps you from reading, to, to pick up a book. And I will, uh, I will repeat the reason I say this. Podcasts are good, but they're limited. They can give you the broad overview, like what I'm doing right now, but in order to get the full facts and the full context of the situation, you have to read. It's imperative. So I'm urging you 
you know, if you want to start off on podcasts, you know, to get the general gist and you want to do further research into the set of Vacantis theological position and, you know, I I would suggest don't just stick to the podcast, but move on to the books. Now, buckle up, people, because we're going into some uncomfortable territory here. And uh, for you newcomers here, you know, you may not be happy about what I'm about to say. Those of you who've listened to a few of my episodes, this is old hat to you. Nothing, nothing I say or the way I say it is going to be shocking. The Catholic Church prior to the anti-Pope John XXIII is the true Catholic Church. And for added, added spice, look up the name John XXIII. He was not the first John XXIII. The other John XXIII was an anti-Pope during the Great Western Schism in the 14th and 15th centuries. Many theologians, saints, and doctors of the church have written how Catholic clergy, including bishops, cardinals, and popes, who are public heretics, are automatically excommunicated by the church. And when they say excommunicated, and by the way, Robert, uh, St. Robert Bellarmine, a doctor of the church, he wasn't the only... Um, he wasn't the only theologian who wrote about this. There were other saints and theologians who wrote about this. But I referenced him earlier in the episode because he, he gave the most concrete way a pope or a bishop or clergy or whatever could ex excuse me could excommunicate themselves there is a vicious myth going around that the council of uh, the magisterium has to get together and they have to vote the pope out this is a lie from the pit of hell this is not true robert saint robert bellamarine and I'm going to repeat, a doctor of the church said that there needs, there needs not be any formal declaration by any of the cardinals or bishops excommunicating a heretical pope. And to get further deep in the weeds, the pope is the head of the church there's nobody on equal footing with him. So in other words, if you truly believe that Francis is the Pope, you can get your Vagano situation going and, and have Vagano try to frog march Francis out of the Vatican. It ain't going to work. Vagano is a bishop. Francis, if you truly consider him Pope, is Pope. It is a, a well-established Fact of Catholic doctrine, the Pope only answers to God. No cardinal, no bishop, no layman 
is in any position to frog march him out of the Vatican. But Robert Bellarmine says that once a Pope or any Catholic for that matter, any Catholic for that matter, it could be Joe Benchwarmer, Pew Warmer, it could be Bishop so-and-so, it doesn't matter. If they commit a public act of heresy and do not repent of that sin publicly, they are automatically disqualified if they're if they're if they're clergy, they're automatically disqualified from their office. And <coughs> excuse me, if they're if they're Joe layperson, they're automatically disqualified out of the uh, Catholic Church if they do not repent of their public sin. The reason I'm saying this is, like I said, there is a pernicious uh, misinformation going around that that the magisterium or the uh, or a conclave has to vote the Pope out. That is a lie. That is that's not true, because these guys are not on par with the Pope. They have no right to judge him. But once a pope is publicly heretical, he disqualifies himself from being a pope. Well, anyway, when I explain the set, of, when I get to the set of a contism episode, I will get into more detail about that. Now, I've had, I've had um, ignorant and misguided Catholic. Catholics argue with me about publicly sinful popes. A public, uh, I'm sorry, I want to I make this point very clear to you. A pope is still a pope even if he is publicly sinful as long as, I'm going to repeat this, as long as he doesn't try to heretically change accepted Catholic dogma and doctrine. Okay? Um, now, if they are publicly sinful, oh yeah, they're going to answer to God when they die. But if, they're, if they are orthodox in their teaching, they are not excommunicated from the church. It's the same thing. It's the same thing for just layman Catholics. A layman Catholic can be privately sinful all he wants to. And if he doesn't confess his sins to his confessor, he's going to answer to God for those private sins. But if he commits a public heretical act and does not and does not uh, publicly repent or confess to it, then he's, he's not a Catholic as far as God's concerned. So, uh, as, a further, as a further addendum, I wanted to add the sinful popes of the 15th century are legitimate popes 
as while they were public sinners, they upheld Orthodox Catholic teachings, which I just realized I'm um, repeating myself. The Pope in particular that I'm thinking of, because he's been made infamous through Netflix and some of the other, like, media, media organization, is the Borgia Pope of the 15th century. I believe he was named Alexander VI. I believe he was the Borgia Pope. Now, this guy... I mean, if uh, I wouldn't recommend if you're if you're a pious person watching this series, but you can read books about him. There are books about him, but um, he he was publicly sinful. I mean, he he was literally publicly sinful. But the conclusion of history is, is that he upheld Orthodox Catholic teaching. He was not, when it came to, to Orthodoxy, he was not heretical in any way. And by the way, just as an added aside, you won't get this information from your, uh, your Vatican II sources either. He was the Pope that gave us the Angelus. Now, for those of you who haven't been to the uh, to the daytime mass, um, Google the Angelus. You know, this is this has been a part of uh, Catholicism since at least the 15th century. The bottom line is in Catholic theology. There's a difference between being a public sinner and a public heretic, which the information I just gave to you, uh, you know, a minute ago should have made clear, you know, um, just because you're a public sinner does not make you a heretic. I think common sense would tell you that. Um, and furthermore, and I think I said this earlier in the episode, but I might have forgotten, Catholic truth cannot contradict itself, meaning that it was, what is true in 100 AD, 500 AD, 1000 AD, 1500 AD, 1850 AD, and 1950 AD cannot change in 1960 AD due to different circumstances. And for those of you of the theological bent, I would suggest comparing the Catechism of 1983, who was drawn up by the anti-Pope John Paul and his successor, anti-Pope Benedict, and compare it with any of the catechisms prior to the 1900s. Catholic truth is objective rather than subjective. In other words, an objective truth never changes. Circumstances do not change it. It, it remains the same throughout time. Whereas subjective truth, going back to the whole um, uh, moral relativism thing, you know, um, 
of subjective truth, well, it changes. It depends on the circumstances. And by the way, the fact that Catholic truth is objective is the reason why it's Catholicism is known as universal. And by the way, I did not come up with this idea about the Catholic Church contradicting it, cannot contradicting itself. Uh, I did not get this from Sedevacantis clergy or laity. I was actually taught that in an RIC class when I joined the Vatican II Church in 2004. Okay, this is looking like it's going to run into two episodes. If you're willing to challenge your worldview, if you're willing to challenge your uh, the way you think, pl- I urge you to please stay tuned. For the um, for the further uh, continuance of this episode, thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you for your time, and I will continue in a minute. Thank you. Welcome back, guys. <clears throat> this uh, particular app I'm using to record these podcasts. I'm only got an hour time limit, so if I want to, uh, if I have to go longer than an hour, I have to stop the podcast and then record a second part. Unfortunately, I'm given a third uh, hour, hour and a half time limit. So if I'm unable to cover the rest of my notes. On this episode, we're going to have to go into a second part. Lord willing, I'll be able to cover it in this portion. So when I left off, I was talking about how Catholic truth cannot contradict itself. This is, this is not necessarily a heresy, and it really isn't. Although, you know, I'll let the theologians thrash this one out, but... There's been a politicalization of the Vatican II Church. Anybody who's even remotely aware knows that um, that the Vatican II sect has broken down their followers into two types. The liberal who, you know... Um, the blatantly heretical stuff they call the spirit of Vatican II, and they're politically and theologically liberal, although I wouldn't say theologically liberal, I would just say not orthodox. And the conservative conservatives who are conservative politically and theologically conservative. Now, I would hesitate on calling these guys um, orthodox 
Because if you recognize a heretical council or a heretical pope, that's not orthodox. You know, um, in either way, um, I fruitlessly, when, when I used to use social media on a regular basis, I used to argue, uh, fruitlessly with Catholics, um, that if you're, if you're a member of the Catholic church, you're either orthodox or unorthodox. You know, you're not liberal, you're not, you're not conservative. Uh, those are political tags. Um, church teachings transcend secular politics and society and is supposed to foster a closer relationship with God and a deeper spiritual life and help you get to heaven. That's my two cents. Now, I've got a list of the heresies and the heirs of the Vatican II Council. This is not exhaustive. This is not detailed. This is basically bullet pointed so that, you know, if you feel moved to research this position, um, you know, I will give you the resources to do that. But this is, this, these are just bullet points. This is not meant to be exhaustive. The first, the first error or heresy is the civil right to religious liberty. This contradicts Pope Pius' encyclical Quanta Cura in 1864. Um, this is in the section called the Declaration on Religious Liberty, paragraph 2. The second error or heresy is revelation was completed at the crucifixion. This in particular is a Protestant heresy. And I know because I was a former Protestant. Um... This, like I said, revelation was completed at the crucifixion. This is a Protestant heresy. Um, this is also from the Declaration of Le Religious Liberty, um, paragraph 11. The, uh, the third uh, heresy or um, error is heretical and schismatic sects are a means of salvation. And what I mean by heretical and schismatic sects, I'm talking about Protestant and Ethan Orthodox. Um, this was located on the Declaration of Religious Liberty called Dignatus Humanae, paragraph 11. This contradicts the Council of Florence. The fourth error or heresy is communal public prayer with heretics and schismatics is useful and commendable. And commendable. This was under the decree on Eucharism. I'm going to spell this last part 
U-N-I-T-A-T-I-S R-E-D-I-N-T-E-G-R-A-T-I-O. This was under paragraph 8. And this contradicts Canon 1258 of the 1917 Code of Canon Law. And just as an added bit of information, when Vatican II was promulgated from 1960 to 1965, the Catholic Church was still under the 1917 Code of Canon Law. But the um, but the canon law, uh, I'm sorry, the canon that um, the communal prayer, public prayer contradicted was canon 1258. The fifth heir or heresy was the procreation and education of children is not the primary ed, uh, I'm sorry, the primary end of the marriage I'm sorry, I'm going to repeat this. Procreation and education of children is not the primary end of marriage. This was under the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes. I'm probably massacring. I'm going to spell it. G-A-U-D-I-U-M-E-T. S-P-E-S, paragraph 50, contradicts canon 1013 of the 1917 Code of Canon Law. Number six is uh, the error or heresy that Jews are not Presented inscription as rejected or accursed. This contradicts scripture. And I will give you the scriptural references. It's St. Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 through 45. And St. Matthew chapter 27 verse 25. This was under the relation of church to non-Christian religions, Nostra Octate, I'm going to spell that, N-O-S-T-R-A-A-E-T-A-T-E. And that was under paragraph four. That was under paragraph four. The, um, the seventh hair or heresy in the Vatican II document is that Christians and Jews have a common spiritual heritage. This, I'm sorry, the la- uh, number six was not under paragraph four. It was not, number six was not under paragraph four. It just contradicted the two scriptures that I quoted from Matthew. Number seven, um, it's under the relation of church to non-Christian religions. I'm not going to try the Latin title. And that 
number seven is under paragraph four, that Christian and Jews have a common spiritual heritage. Number eight is, or I'm sorry, the heir and heresy of number eight is past dissensions with Muslims should be forgiven. Declaration on the relation of the church to non-Christian religion. And uh, that's under paragraph three. Um, just for future reference, if there is a Latin uh, title um, to a particular um, to a particular uh, declaration or whatever, um, the first time I will give the, the, the Latin title, if I can't pronounce it, I'll spell it. If I can't pro and and if I can't pronounce it, I'm not going to repeat it. If it's coming from the same same document, if I can't pronounce it, I will repeat it. Okay, so number nine, number nine, um, heresy or error of the Vatican II. Um, council is <clears throat> the liturgical services of Protestants engender the life of I'm sorry the liturgical services of Protestants engender the life of and aptly give access to the communion of salvations or I'm sorry and give access to the communion of salvation. Basically, it means that Protestant um, church services help you to get saved. Um, this was under the decree on Eucanism. Um, I'm going to spell this. U-N-T-I-T-A-T-I-S R-E-D-I-N-T-E-G-R-A-T-I-O and it was under paragraph 3. Once again, the error or the, the heresy was that Protestant church services are a means of salvation. They are not. The 10th error or heresy of the Second Vatican Council is the church has a high regard for the doctrines which differ from her own. This is under the Declaration on the Relation of the Church to Non-Christian Religious. Religions, I'm sorry, Non-Christian Religions. That's under paragraph 2 of that of that particular document of Vatican II. Number 11, error or heresy of Vatican II. Theological meetings and discussions on equal footing 
I'm going to put special emphasis on this, on equal footing between Catholics and non-Catholics is commendable. Decree, this was under the decree on Eucharism, and this was under paragraph 9. This contradicts Pope Pius IX's encyclical, and I'm going to have to spell this one, M-O-R-T-A-L-I-U-M-A-N-I-M-U-S. Yeah, uh, I haven't had time to study Latin, guys, so I'll give you the spellings and hopefully you can do the rest. Number 12th error or heresy of Vatican II. Christians and non-Christians together search for truth and moral answers. Pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 16. Okay, number 13. Heir of Heresy of Vatican II. The church must dialogue with atheists to establish order in the world. This is also under the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, but this one is under paragraph 21 and contradict Pope Pius VI encyclical. Oh, this is going to be one farmer. U-B-I-A-R-A-C-A-N-O-D-E-I, which is, I think it's D. I can't pronounce the other stuff, though. The 14th error or heresy of the Second Vatican Council is, the church needs to help not, I'm sorry, the 14th error or heresy of the Second Vatican Council is the, the church needs the help. The church needs the help of non-believers and this is also under the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, this is under paragraph 44. Now, as far as that last, uh, <laughs> that last uh, section, you know, the church needs the help of non-believers. Uh, if you don't find that heretical, then... You know, you're you're a lost cause as far as I'm concerned. The fifteenth heir or heresy of the Second Vatican Council is Catholic missionaries should be should cooperate with heretical missionaries. 
decree on the church's missionary activity. I'm going to spell this. A-D-G-E-N-T-E-S-D-I-V-I-N-I-T-U-S, paragraph 29. The error or heresy of the Second Vatican Council, number 16, deficiencies in the formation of church teachings should be put right. This is from the decree on Eucharism and uh, U-N-I-T-A-T-I-S-R-E-D-I-N-T-E-G-R-A-T-I-O-N, paragraph 6. This particular section contradicts Pope Gregory the Sixteenth's encyclical M-I-R-A-R, no, I'm sorry. M A, I'm sorry. M I R A S I V O S, dated 15 August 1832. So I'm going to repeat that. The, the, the name of the encyclical was M I R A S I V O S. Okay, so that's not all. The 17th error and heresy was the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy which revised the rubrics of the Latin Mass, which had been in place since the Council of Trent, to give examples of how this had been revised, communion in the hand, no kneeling, no communion rail, priest faces the laity during the sacrifice of the Mass, communion of both species, bread and wine, in the Latin Mass, you're only given the bread. Number 18, the decree on the instruments of social communication. I'm going to spell this one. I-N-T-E-R-M-I-R-I-F-I-C-A, dated 4 December 63, contradicts previous church teachings on a free press. Number 19, decree on Eastern Catholic churches. I'm going to spell this one, O-R-I-E-N-T-A-L-I-U-M-E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A, 
R-U-M, 21 November 64, paragraph 27. Number 20, the decree on the, on the bishops, pastoral office of the church, Christus, Dominus, I'm going to spell it just in case I mispronounced it, C-H-R-I-S-T-U-S, D-O-M-I-N-U-S, 28 October 1965, contradicts church teachings about the Pope being the head of the Catholic Church. Number 21, Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, D-E-I-V-E-R-B-U-M, 18 November 65, paragraphs 22 and 25. This is not the exhaustive list of the heirs of the Vatican II Council. Okay? Um, most of the books that I have uh, read about the heirs of Vatican II generally run between 300 to 500 pages long, depending on the author. There's plenty to cover. But I've covered 20 sections where there have either been contradictions or errors in Vatican II. So in closing... I humbly beg and beseech you guys, please challenge your worldview. Please challenge what you think is correct. Be skeptical. You have nothing to lose. If you, if you do the, the, um, the reading or the listening of the set of a contest podcast and still decide that, you know, we're full of crap. We don't know what we're talking about. The only thing you've done is, is wasted some time making sure for yourself that we're incorrect. But if you truly believe that the Catholic Church is the one true religion and you find out that we, you know, if, if God gives you the leading and you find out that yes, we are correct. You just found the one true religion, which is going to help get you into heaven. Anyway, I want to thank you for uh, listening. I want to thank you for your time and your patience. Um, I just want to say, I do love you. I pray for all of you, and I, I want to see all of you get to heaven. I truly and honestly do. Now, obviously, that's not going to be quite possible, but I'd like to see a lot of you get to heaven, if that's indeed possible. Anyway, I want to say to you, God bless you. Have a good day. Goodbye.